2: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. A possible partner for struggling regional banks. Private equity names like Blackstone popping up on the list of bidders for the likes of SVB and First Republic. Could they become part of the banking sector in a bigger way? We'll talk to one investor about whether this marks a potential shift in banking as we know it. Speaking of which, Truist initiating one fintech company with a buy rating, declaring it the future of banking. The analyst behind the call tells us why he sees 60 percent upside from here. And remember when in was quote unquote transitory. That's a distant memory for most Americans who now expect high prices are here to stay. We talked to the Wall Street Journal's Greg Ip about why that's such a problem and the only two ways to bring prices back down to earth. First, though, Dom Chu with the numbers. Familiar pattern here. They Dom. are,
3: and the stock prices are actually falling. So that's probably one of the parts of the narrative that you want to talk about with regard to taming the inflation narrative overall. But. The S&P 500 is now just a hair above the 4,100 mark. You can see 4,102. This is pretty much the lows of the session, down about 28 points, as you can see right here. We were actually up 13 points earlier on, looking like we were going to try to see a bit of a relief rally or bounce, that sort of thing. But the S&P 500 right there, down about two-thirds of 1%, one-half of 1% declines for the Dow Industrials. 33,136 off about 173 points. And the NASDAQ composite down about 110 points, 12,217. The underperformer off about almost one full percent here. So that tech trade is starting to lose a little bit of steam. One of the places that we are seeing that narrative on the economy broader, not just here in the U.S., but around the world as well, shift a little bit more negative is on the commodity side of things, specifically harder commodities, things that you mine for and dig for. Copper prices are down about 9% over the course, you can see here, of the last month. WTI crude prices down about 16%. Some traders and investors look towards these particular commodities as being more tells of that macroeconomic picture. They used to call it Dr. Copper. It's got a PhD in economics. So watch those particular trades play out. And then from a stock-specific perspective, there are places that are moving in in the market right now. But one of the things that you want to keep a close eye on is the story that's developing around some of these other trades, specifically with regard to the regional banks. I'm going to highlight the one-week chart just to show you there's a bit of a divergence happening in stability. PacWest Bank, we've talked about it extensively this week, given some of the deposit issues and outflows there, off about 23% over the last one week. Bank of Hawaii, one of the Western regional lenders that's been kind of more caught up in the ripple effects there, down about 25%. Meanwhile, Western Alliance... Kelly, we know this is one of the banks closest to the epicenter of the regional bank crisis. It's now pretty much flat on the week, down about one and a half percent. So, there's a real, maybe interesting story developing about what the haves and have-nots are in some of these regional bank trades. We'll see if investors play more into that in the coming weeks. Kel, back over to you.
2: All right, Dom, I'll see you shortly. Thank you. The cost of protecting the U.S. against default is surging. Five-year credit default swaps hitting their highest level since March of 2009. That means right now it's even higher than what we saw during the last debt ceiling fight in 2011. Now it comes as President Biden and Congress remain deadlocked over raising the limit this time, and it comes at a delicate time with Secretary Yell And also meeting with bank leaders to forestall a worsening crisis, and as the economy shows signs of heading into recession. Here to discuss the fallout, Ben White is chief economic correspondent at Politico and a CNBC contributor, along with our very own Kayla Tausch. Welcome to both of you. Kayla, let me just kick things off with you. It, it, it's a newsy day in Washington. What's the latest?
4: Well, the latest, Kelly, is that staff from both the White House and the congressional leaders' offices are still trying to hammer out any potential areas of agreement. There needs to be a meeting early next week before President Biden leaves for Asia on Wednesday if there's going to be any sort of agreement that can move forward in a timely manner before that June 1st default deadline. So far, Republicans have put forth four buckets, permitting reform, uh, work requirements for people receiving Medicaid and uh, food stamp benefits, um, clawing back some of the COVID aid, and then pursuing a deal to cap government spending for multiple years. I'm told permitting reform and those spending caps are two of the lowest hanging fruit for these negotiations. But of course, the devil, Kelly, is always in the details. And there are a lot of details there that need to be worked out. All of this while the Congressional Budget Office is saying, yes, early June is when the U.S. would in fact default, that if Treasury has to pay more than $300 billion in bills, that it won't be able to do it with the cash it has on hand. And it might not be able to make it to June 15th when more tax revenue comes in.
2: What, by the way, did CBO say today? Because I saw, it seems like they're in the basket of, we could still hit it in the first weeks of June. We missed that point. Maybe we, you know, can hold out a little bit longer. And I also thought it was interesting what they said about the deficit and the debt. I mean, that's why we're in this situation to some extent in the first place.
4: Right. Well, it's sort of like a household budget, Kelly. If you could pay your water bill and your electric bill, but not pay your mortgage, not pay the bigger ticket item and conserve some of that cash, then maybe you could stumble along and make it work. But Treasury has never been in this position and they're extremely conservative about how to do this. And there's certainly a lot of payments coming due. Social security payments, veterans benefits, federal salaries, tens of billions of dollars that they'll need to pay. And June 15th is when the tax revenue comes in. CBO says, um, If Treasury can make it to June 15th, then based on how much cash comes in from some of those tax receipts, maybe it could make it to late July Hmm. without a default. But there's, of course, a lot of ifs in there and a lot of conditions on, you know, what exactly Treasury decides that it can and must pay and, you know, what actually ends up coming in on June 15th.
2: Right. Exactly. Ben, let me turn to you on that. So we obviously see investors pricing in a, a pretty high out of default and odds of default what's interesting about that is that there's no reaction in the stock market yeah. some extent of reaction in the bond market but the fact that, that credit default swaps are now higher than we saw in 2011 without a market impact is striking
1: it is striking and it does show you that there are those in the market who understand that this particular debt limit standoff is much more complicated and difficult than the last couple since 2011 when we got downgraded by Standard & Poor's and that was the first time in our history and we got close to a default. The contours are there for that to happen again given all that Taylor just said about the timing and getting to June 1 versus June 15 and right. the tax receipts. So the risk is and tax
2: receipts have been worse than expected. They were worse terrible in right. April. They were like $200 billion. Precisely. Of May has been kind of soft. So that's kind of pushing us closer. Right. To we're
1: not getting better news on that front. So if anything, the, the deadline gets pushed forward a little bit. I still believe uh, that there is a deal to be had here that will include um, some give back of the COVID money that hasn't been spent uh, permitting reform. Uh, and then a, a hike of the debt limit. Because I think Republicans know uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, needs to keep his speakership by getting something through that Republicans can support. But they know the polls, they know every time this happens they get hammered for it and they get blamed for it. And there's new polling out today suggesting the public would blame Republicans for
2: it. But it's odd because it's sort of like there's two aspects of this. And it's there's who do you blame in a debt ceiling fight? But also, what do you want to be done about spending and deficits? And And so a lot of people would say, well, I want us to rein things and I want austerity. And that's where it feels like. And this is the point Dan Clifton keeps making. But. All of this is really about, in 2011, when Obama raised the debt ceiling, he yeah. had to concede to significant austerity. Right. And if we have to concede to any austerity now, it's at a pretty bad time for the economy.
1: Exactly. We can't really afford uh, austerity cuts right now or big discretionary spending limits. And what was in the original Republican plan are pretty drastic cuts in discretionary spending if you take out the military, which they said they would. The economy can't really afford that. Republicans know that. That's not going to happen. There is a deal here, Kelly. Uh, It just needs to be made. And it's actually not a bad sign that they're not meeting today. That means staff is talking and there are details to be worked out. Get the principles together next week before Biden leaves and hopefully save our summer and that we don't have to be you know, driving to the beach and worrying about this in July because I don't want to be.
2: Well, that said, Kayla, I thought the uh, former President Trump's comments were quite interesting, where he took a really hard line on the debt ceiling issue the other night, said he thinks Republicans should push for huge spending cuts. And if that's any indication of where some of the public is on this, then perhaps we should be prepared for a bigger fight.
4: Yeah, and he also said that the country should just go ahead and default and see what happens, leaving some like Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, to call it irresponsible and say that's why, you know, he doesn't trust him on matters like this. Look, I mean, Kelly, I think that there are real questions as to what the path forward is and how long these spending cuts can agreed upon, be agreed upon. Because on one hand, you know, there seems to be some rumblings that maybe two years is a time frame that the administration would try to push for. But just yesterday, some Republicans on the Hill have said, well, if it's only two years that we're capping spending, then we need to get a lot in return for that. The cost that we're going to exact, the price that we're going to exact is going to be really high for only two years. I mean, they want the curve of government spending to essentially be redirected downward, which is a really big change from recent trends. So, you know, the the question of how long the term is for any sort of spending caps deal still remains to be seen um, and you know some Republicans have suggested that maybe default is a good thing at least that's their public posturing because they want to show the administration that they're not worried about it but I think behind the scenes they know that you know it would be a bridge too far and that the you know the, it's really just unch- uncharted territory and you don't know what would happen after that.
2: Yeah obviously part of the reason why that 10-year three-month yield inversion has been as bad as it is lately with yeah. three-month bills spiking and the rest. Kayla we appreciate Appreciate it, Ben. Thank you. Our Kayla Tausche and Ben White reporting. Thank you. Let's turn to earnings season winding down, but not before we hear from the retailers. And one clear theme so far has been disappointing guidance. My next guest says only a third of S&P companies so far have issued better than expected guidance. So what does that tell us? And what should investors brace for in the weeks to come? Joining us is Wolf Research Chief Investment Strategist Chris Senek. Chris, it's good to see you again. And any reason to expect a brighter tone from retailers?
5: Uh, hi, Kelly, and thanks for having me on. Um, no, I mean, retailers are the ones that have uh, inventory issues and and where there's been a slowdown in goods spending. So uh, we're not optimistic that that's going to change the trend. And, you know, so far this earnings season, 33 uh, percent of companies have issued guidance uh, for the next quarter above their midpoint. Um, and that's a little bit better than the past few quarters. But if the world was uh, improving in a material way or if the trends we had seen in the first quarter, were expected to continue, you would think you'd have a lot higher number of that. And we're just not seeing it.
2: Even Dana Telsey, the retail analyst who joined us yesterday, said she's concerned about the hockey stick projections for retail earnings into the back half and that she thinks we're going to get some uh, potential change in that, some downward revisions. Now, her concern might still be a quarter away, but maybe we could start to see that now.
5: I think indeed. And if you look at the broader market, you know, back half of the year uh, for third quarter and fourth quarter, numbers haven't come down at all for the broader market and, and across a lot of sectors. So it's not even just a retail phenomenon. It's it's a broader market phenomenon. And that's why I think now the bar's been set quite high for QQ earnings season where uh, analysts you know have raised numbers a little bit. Uh, companies have sounded OK. Economy was a little bit better in the first quarter. We have to admit that the recession got pushed out. Uh, and now as we go into uh, July reporting season, um the bar is gonna be high. Uh, we'll see what happens with the economy. And I think companies are gonna really have to slash numbers for the back half of the year.
2: Yeah, I, I do like looking at kind of the guidance as a barometer of where the market is relative to expectations. And um, you know, we we've been we've been worse certainly in terms of only a third of companies issuing higher than expected guidance for basically all of 2010 to 2020. We were kind of in that range. So this isn't that. Worrisome by historical standards, and there are a couple of companies to highlight: Marriott, Boston Scientific, Eaton, NXP. Those are all names that had pretty positive guidance and stock reactions in their results.
5: Yeah, indeed. So, you know, among the positive guidance across sectors, industrials, we saw the the greatest percentage of upward revisions. Uh, some of that was driven by the airlines, like Delta and United, and then um, companies that have raised guidance and also for the past two quarters. Uh, beat on revenues and EPS and the stock went up when they did that uh, were Marriott, Boston Scientific, Eden, and NXP. So if you're looking for, for new ideas, uh, that may be a place to start where it seems like earnings trends have been solid uh, and uh, and the guidance is a, a vote of confidence that that may continue.
2: All right, Chris, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Chris Senek with Wolf Research. Still ahead, regional banks are facing not just losses on their bonds, but also gathering clouds over commercial real estate and other loans on their books. But could private equity come to their rescue? My next guest calls this the golden age for private lenders. He joins me next to explain. And speaking of banks, what's digital, nimble, and always on? Truist says it's this fintech firm, initiating it with a buy and adding the future of banking is now. Strong words for a stock that's 80% off its all-time high. The analyst behind the call joins us to make his case. And we had to break. Here's a look at the markets with the Dow down 135 points, close to session lows. We started in the green today. The s and down half a percent, seven points above 4,100. The Nasdaq's down three quarters of one percent. The 10-year, 344. We're back after this.
6: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. The ongoing regional bank crisis causing large and small banks alike to tighten their lending standards. But private players think private equity and even family offices have been stepping up to fill those gaps. The likes of Apollo, Carlyle and BlackRock even threw their hats in the ring for SVB and First Republic's assets. And my next guest is also willing to step in where banks won't, completing a hundred million dollar commercial real estate loan for a property in New York just last week. Could there be closer partnerships to come between private equity and the banks? Joining me now is Ron Elias. ISF Northwind Group's founder and managing partner. Welcome back. It's good to see you.
8: Thank you for having me.
2: Talk to me about this New York deal and some of the other things you've been involved in. Is that specifically because the banks aren't there?
8: Definitely. What we're seeing that the senior part of the capital stack that typically has been provided by commercial banks, they're just not there for regulatory reasons, for the macro environment. So we've been stepping up lending significantly and actually providing note-on-note financing, A-note financing, This deal we just closed, we provided an A-note on a pretty large hotel, 800 keys, that's been converted from a vacant hotel post-COVID into a multifamily building. Wow.
2: It was significant and a sign of the times. I mean, it caught everybody's attention as they released the list of bidders for SVB, First Republic. There were at least Blackstone, maybe a couple of other private equity firms on that list. What does that tell you?
8: There's only a handful of firms that can write those size of checks right now, Uh, and Most of those loan pools haven't really traded because of it. Um, The biggest discussion is what is the discount rate that they will buy those pool of loans that sit in those banks.
2: Right, absolutely. The larger question, and some have raised this, is whether there would be synergies between private equity and regional banks in general going forward, right? If they said, okay, regional banks have maybe a deposit of funding problem, could they package loans? Like they're good at originating loans, right? They are on the ground, they have close relationships, but maybe on the deposit side over time, they lose out to the bigger banks. Could they do something, a business model where they originate loans and sell them to private equity players and the like? And, and private equity becomes a more stable funding structure over time.
8: That could be what we're seeing more right now, is us partnering with some of these banks and we're delivering them, meaning there's a pool pool of loan or specific loan they gave, we take the B note or the B piece, they size down their position, we get a higher return. We get our return, they deliver, and that's a great solution. And we've been doing it very actively in the last few months.
2: And why do you think this is a golden time for kind of private credit in general? And we've seen some warnings lately about, you know, the risks that could be in this arena and how, you know, policymakers are trying to keep an eye on that. But why has so much activity moved to this part of the market?
8: Very simple. Banks are on the sidelines, not lending. There is currently a need, a huge need by borrowers. Funds that have raised capital like ours in the last few years were able to deploy that capital. And the reason it's a golden era right now is because we're doing the same type of loans we did a few years ago, but at lower LTVs to better sponsors, better properties and higher interest rates.
2: Wow. So if I were, you know, Janet Yellen and I was saying, okay, well, what do I know about the risks in these kind of private credit pools and the fact at which, you know, changing macro means that there might be losses there that kind of cascade through the economy. Would there be reason to be concerned about that? Or do you think that they're, you know, sort of going to come out of this with um, maybe the much more positive results than we went through after the financial crisis?
8: There's a real reason to be concerned. It depends which asset class you're looking at. At office, a lot of complexities, a lot of vacancies, a lot of supply issues. We focus mostly on residential loans. In residential, especially in dense markets like New York City, there's a scarcity of supply. That's usually a good thing, it's a healthy thing. Actually, we think the city needs to create much more supply Mm -hmm. in order to meet the demand. That's why we're seeing rents at all time high. And even now, condo units, if you look at the for sale condo markets, units are selling at a lower pace, but not at a reduced price. So we chose to focus on residential loans where we feel it's easier to underwrite the market.
2: And do you feel comfortable in that positioning? I mean, how many more innings can we be in, right? If we know that maybe we're heading for a macro downturn but you feel comfortable about the long-term, you know, attractiveness there, could this still have another year, two year, three years of a bull market, so to speak, to play out? Or, or what do you think?
8: I think it's the opposite of a bull market right now, uh, but it's all about the micro. You need to look at the specific market, specific asset class. So for example, New York City residential looks pretty healthy. So we're landing on that. New York City office, we're, for the most part, staying away.
2: Sure. A final question on interest rates. If the Federal Reserve pauses here, if they were to keep hiking, if they start to cut, what's the impact going to be on business?
8: Well, right now, we're seeing the impact right now. Interest rates, where they are right now, they're kind of suffocating the economy. People are not spending. People are not buying. And mostly, the bars cannot borrow. Nobody can really sustain these rates in a longer duration. All the profit margins are basically... Evaporating.
2: Absolutely. So you think that's going to really still, that's what's going to hit the economy next, no matter which way they go with rates next meeting?
8: We're already seeing it right now.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Ron, thanks for your time today. Pleasure. Good to check in with you. Really appreciate it. Ron Eliasef with Northwind. Still ahead, first solar leading the S&P having its best day in over a decade. It's up 23% right now. Highest level in 15 years. What gives? And why are more than half of the names in the Invesco solar ETF still in the red today? We will definitely explain. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. We're seeing two to three decliners outpacing advancers. Nike, JP Morgan, 3M among the worst performers. IBM leading the way, though. The exchange is back. Back after this.
0: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in
8: seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction.
0: Now I can say bye-bye to writer's
8: block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com designed for work Canva.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets have tipped lower this afternoon, though we're off just the lows of the session. We got some comments from Austin Goolsby a short while ago as well. He said he hopes the Fed uh, can avoid a recession. Uh, Made similar remarks about how they're doing a better job on employment than inflation right now, so not overly dovish in tone. Uh, That said, the Dow right now is down 93 points. The S&P is down 17, but at 41.13, and the Nasdaq's down two-thirds of 1%, so reversing some of its outperformance earlier in the week. Consumer discretionary reflecting that is among the sector laggards. Down 1%, everybody else kind of an even Stevens. Utilities and staples are leading the way higher today with interest rates falling. A uh, 10-year back last check was around 344. Utilities up a third of a percent. Consumer, sta- consumer staples, though, are barely positive. Energy down again. Fiverr is set to end the week higher after cutting its net loss by 75 percent from a year earlier. But AI could be a big risk to their business, according to RBC, who lowered their price target from 40 to 32 this morning. The shares are at 28 today. RBC warning the generative AI risk to Fiverr is here to stay. This has been a big discussion point around the stock. Piper Sandler attributed last week's 27% drop in Fiverr to fears around the potential impact of AI on the freelance hiring platform. Why do you need to hire someone to do it if ChatGPT can do it for you? But that said, Piper's still a little bit more optimistic, saying... The move is more based on the fear of what if rather than anything known today. Shares are on pace still for their worst month in about a year, down 22 percent. Elsewhere, Chewy is a top consumer e-commerce pick at Roth MKM. They see more than 50 percent upside in the stock. It's down one percent. It's below 35 today. They're highlighting a longer term support around the 30 dollar level. The firm also pointing out it's trading at just one times forward revenue, down from a peak of more than 5x in February of 2021. I mean, these were the eye-watering multiples we used to see these startups trading at. Chewy now one times revenue, quite pedestrian, uh, something to watch ahead of their Q1 results on May 31st. Let's get to Courtney Reagan now for a CNBC news update. Courtney.
4: Hi, Kelly. Here is your news update at this hour. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan was released on bail today. This comes after Khan was taken from a court and arrested on corruption charges earlier this week. The opposition leader's arrest triggered nationwide protests, which left at least 10 dead and dozens injured. Back in the U.S., Vice President Kamala Harris will kick off fundraising efforts for the 2024 election in Georgia today. Harris will headline the Democratic Party of Georgia's spring soiree and attend a private fundraising event. This comes after President Biden began fundraising for the 2024 re-election campaign in New York yesterday. And Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman will retire after decades of U.S. government service next month. The top diplomat has been involved in consequential foreign policy decisions during Democratic administrations since Bill Clinton's presidency. Sherman played a key part in the Biden administration's efforts to compete with China in the Indo-Pacific. Kelly, back over to All you. All right, Courtney, thank you very much. Coming up,
2: digital, nimble, and always on. That's how one analyst describes this stock, which he's calling the future of U.S. banking. If you think you know what it is, tweet me at KellyCNBC. We'll reveal it after the break. Welcome back, everybody. The banking landscape is changing, and it's not just private equity, as we were just discussing. Amid the recent bank turmoil, my next guest says we could see more of a shift to digital banking and see it pick up speed. As a result, he's initiating SoFi with a buy, calling it the future for the industry. The stock down today, but up 9% so far this year. Joining me is the analyst behind the call, Truist Andrew Jeffrey. Andrew, it's good to see you again. Welcome.
0: Likewise, Kelly. Thanks.
2: Why SoFi and not, you know, uh, who, uh, PayPal? Is it Block? Whoever uh, owns Cash App or why not Robinhood? I mean, why this one?
0: Sure. I mean, we we like Cash App too. Uh, I think it has uh, obviously demonstrated a lot of consumer value. I think the thing about SoFi that makes it different is it really, it's truly a bank. It's an FDIC insured depository institution. It uh, has terrific vertically integrated technology from our standpoint, a leading app with a very slick uh, UX. And, And most importantly, it's a chief beneficiary of some of the disruption we've seen in the banking industry. You can see the company has increased its deposit tenfold, over the last year, and it's deploying those deposits into what we view as very profitable, predominantly personal loans, also some student loans and mortgages,
2: mm-hmm. all
0: through a single app, all data-driven. We think that really sets it apart.
2: So when I think about all of these fintechs, you know, I think, okay, Robinhood, I'm going to go trade stocks. I think, um, you know, who else? Cash App, obvious. Venmo, obvious. SoFi, I think refinance student loans, right? Like, what? who... How would SoFi, how would I be involved with SoFi, right, at this point, if I'm not in that particular market right now?
0: You're right about how the company got its start. It has uh, subsequently diversified pretty significantly its biggest product is personal loans. And, And the idea is you attract people to the platform to use the checking and savings account, uh, especially with a very high 4.2% yield, which is obviously a lot higher than banks. That's how they're attracting deposits, although that funding cost is less than the secondary markets for their loans. So it's helping their margins. And then they really help you, as they say, get your money right, uh, make better financial decisions, but perhaps consolidate debt, lower interest rate payments, etc. Um, you know i'm a i'm a customer myself and i was attracted initially by the high APY but certainly be able mm-hmm. to consolidate my accounts in all, one, all in one place have a look at all of my assets in one place get free financial advice um, uh, etc i think is a truly differentiating aspect i suspect it's going to play to a younger Uh, demographic, uh, but I think that's fine. I think that's the future.
2: So I guess my concern is a little bit like we saw with uh, direct-to-consumer e-commerce plays. In other words, over time, are they going to have to have a high cost to compete and retain and attract customers through, like you said, either offering very high yields on their accounts... Or simply through advertising. I mean, at some point, these all these fintechs are a commodity, and it's all about who's best known, most out there with marketing spend. And a lot of the consumer DTC plays have blown up as a result because their business models aren't sustainable.
0: Yeah, I think it's a fair question. This company does have very strong unit economics, about three times LTV to CAC. I think the, uh, the best thing about the model is that once they acquire a customer or a member through the top of the funnel via their uh, financial products, they don't need to acquire that customer again. So you've got the customer on the platform, uh, he or she is engaged with the products, and then begins to see the merits of additional monetizing lending products. I think the other thing that really distinguishes SoFi is their, their tech platform. Embedded finance, the ability to, for uh, to allow non-financial companies to offer financial services is a $3 trillion market and growing very fast. Hmm. It's only about 15% of their revenue today. But I suspect, especially starting next year, that growth is going to the growth in that segment's going to accelerate. That's a profitable business. This is an intrinsically profitable company, in my view. Twenty three percent ROE at the bank today, not necessarily at the holding company, but it is profitable on an EBITDA basis. We yeah. estimate about two hundred eighty million dollars this year. So I think it's already proven out the profit point. Now it's got to grow fast enough and grow profitably and underwrite well in, dis- in a disciplined way and maintain right. its. It's charge offs. And, and, and in that respect, it's very much a bank.
2: No, it, it's funny how the bank crises have made me and I think many people almost wary about financial company that's growing too quickly because we now know what a red flag that is. Just a real quick final word, Andrew, on this embedded yep. finance, which is super interesting. So they're providing kind of banking or finance tools or payments tools to other kinds of companies. Just explain that for a minute.
0: Yeah, so um, probably the easiest product to understand would be a product called uh, earned wage access. It's the ability to go to an employer and say, hey, you can offer to pay your employees any way they want to be paid. Um, that's one example of financial service. So, if 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 somebody wants to be paid daily or weekly, uh, they can tailor their their pay. Um, that would be one example. Point of sale lending is another example. These are all solutions that non-financial companies can bring to their customers uh, without actually having to be finance companies or
2: banks. All right, Andrew, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Have a good weekend.
2: Andrew Jeffrey, you too, of Truist. Speaking of banks, Goldman Sachs spinning off its first startup, a networking platform its founder is calling an AI-powered LinkedIn on steroids. As they hope, investments in their internal incubator program are starting to pay dividends. CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Sun has the story. He's here with the details, Hugh. Um, It's sort of like, oh, while we're all talking about the bank crises and everything else that's going on, Goldman, this is a pretty big move by them. What exactly is going on here?
7: Hey, Kelly, great to be with you. So not a whole lot of people know. About five years ago, Goldman Sachs saw a lot of people leaving internally to do their own startups, their own ideas. So they decided, they said, you know what? We're going to have our own startup incubator. Uh, and by the way, it takes too long internally for Goldman to innovate digitally. They said, let's try to accelerate that. So one of the first things that uh, first ideas that they had uh, in these internal competitions was for something called Luisa, And Luisa is uh, ultimately uh, a kind of LinkedIn except with uh, AI pre-populating all the profiles, hmm. taking from internal databases that show that, you know, uh, Hugh Sun writes stories about fintech, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Therefore, I'm good at, you know, uh, you know, those, and I have expertise in those companies and in fintech. And also looking at transaction data for the, you know, in the context of Goldman Sachs, and basically creating a network of uh, experts internally and then taking in news uh, and saying, you know what, there's, there's, there's going to be an opportunity in, for instance, a power plant or a, you know, a circuit uh, chip plant in Taiwan, for instance. And that's going to be a huge uh, opportunity for financing. Let's get two people uh, you know, one on a, a person in Singapore and a person in the U.S. and put them together, to try to get that financing. So it's coming up with ideas.
2: So it's, it's lead gen, it's business <clears throat> development. It's more than just connecting people internally. It's, it's really about trying to identify external opportunities and immediately matching people to those?
7: Right. It's not passive. It's not waiting for people to create their profiles. It's doing it automatically. Uh, and in the case of generative AI, you know, if they have uh, put a layer on that, it's going to, you know, that is going to have these pre-populated bios, you know, and it could write one for you in, in yeah. seconds, and that would be helpful.
2: I'm just curious what it would look like inside of, let's say, a CNBC organization or any one of the myriad organizations out there. Is it translatable from its success at Goldman to many other kinds of companies? Well, that's
7: certainly that's certainly a hope. So the, the founder, CEO, founder Rohan Doctor is approaching, you know, banks, law firms, consulting firms, anywhere where you know the people are really kind of the product. You know, it's 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 knowledge workers. Uh, and he's surely gonna pitch uh, NBC and CNBC for that. Um, and I, you know, I, look, I, I think there's something to be said for, uh, there is a limit for how many people you can know personally. And there are surely people in this organization that you could benefit from knowing. However, you and perhaps that person have no idea that you could benefit from that.
2: Right. In a way, it reminds me of kind of the idea of being in the workplace to have these kinds of um, networking opportunities. If you can take that outside of it, then people don't ever have a reason to come in. They can just, you know, be crossed up on these message boards. I just want to make a macro point here, Hugh, which is interesting as well. The landscape a couple of years ago was so different. You know, if they had spun this out into a really hot IPO market, they probably could have made a killing on it if that's the idea um, because the, the markets have changed, yeah. what does that mean for the significance of these startup investments and whether they continue to run this model with inside the company?
7: Well, they're doing it primarily because they they get to use, they're the first adopters of this technology. So the the CEO and founder and a small group of his investors actually own it outright. So Goldman Sachs spun it out. They have no ownership stake in, in, in that whatsoever. You know, I, I think it is uh, Do they lose
2: those employees as a result?
7: They lose their employees. And so it's a way for Goldman Sachs, you know, uh, partners and, and, and managing directors to essentially work themselves out of a job. Yeah, And so you have people who, you know, essentially make five to seven million dollars, maybe more going into a, a high risk, high return kind of gambit. So it's, you know, it's certainly.
2: It's fascinating. And is yeah. anyone else other than Goldman had this kind of model or working on this kind of approach?
7: Yeah, I mean, Goldman's pretty unique in terms of the banks. You know, I want to say Cap One is also known to be very tech forward, but Goldman certainly is at the top of that. And they've hired from Google, they've hired from Amazon to try to up their
2: tech chops. Fascinating. Hugh, thanks for bringing that to us. Hugh Sun with another look at the future of banking. Still ahead, shares of first solar on pace for their best day in more than 10 years after the Treasury clarified some rules around the IRA tax credits. But not all solar stocks are seeing a boost. Just look at Sunrun and Sunpower. We'll tell you what's behind the split next. Welcome back, everybody. Made in America, solar names are absolutely soaring today on updated tax credit guidance uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act. It comes for it to amid a tough year so far for solar stocks, and particularly after that rough first quarter earnings season. Uh, Enphase, Sunrun, those are the two worst performers in the Invesco solar ETF since Jan 1, with Enphase down about 37 percent, SunPower 41 percent, Sunrun similar, uh, the TAN ETF overall down about 10 percent year-to-date. Let's bring in Pippa Stevens. And Pippa, these, I mean, the volatility in these stocks continues to astound. What now?
9: Yeah, I mean, so the volatility has been pretty crazy. I think there's been a little bit of a mismatch between what we're hearing from executives and, and how they've performed. However, we do now need to distinguish between different parts of the supply chain. So as you noted, first, solar is soaring today because they are a panel manufacturer. In the U.S. Exactly, exactly. So they have operations worldwide, but including in the U.S., and they are the only actual sizable producer in the United States. And so we got the updated guidelines from Treasury today with that 10 percent domestic content credit. Hmm. We knew that was coming, but they clarified it. And it's really divided the industries. Sorry. What does the 10 percent? credit mean in practice? Yeah, so that's on. So there's a 30% credit already then the 10% is specifically for domestic content. And so that's on top of the 30%, meaning if you're a utility scale uh, you know, uh, uh, provider, then you get 40% in total if you buy those panels, if that 10% credit is included. And this is very confusing because it's really divided the industry because some say it should have been at the cell level while, while the utility company said it should be at the module level. Hmm. And that's because they said if it was the more limited and narrow definition at the cell level that would have just kind of curtailed the industry since we don't have a robust cell manufacturing uh, capacity currently in the US.
2: These are huge incentives, you can understand why the stocks are reacting. Are we going to end up with more cell manufacturing capacity here because if you're one of these other companies, now it's no secret for solar has been in this for quite some time. Mm-hmm. This is their whole kind of play. Why haven't the other companies either tried to mimic what they're doing or why don't we have new companies getting in just to take advantage of this? Um, Is there anything to be done about the cell issue in particular?
9: Because previously it wasn't profitable. And so China has a lock on that market and they are the majority of sales come from there. And so that's why people who are the the developers in the U.S. have said we should focus on the modules, not the cells, because otherwise you just cannot build it out. And we are seeing a lot of now, uh, you know, producers announcing domestic manufacturing facilities for solar is expanding. We also had Hanwha Q-cells, others that are now building out capacity in the U.S., but this doesn't happen overnight. And also, we were waiting clarity on things like this domestic content provision, and until you get that clarity, you're not going to invest in a new factory, you're not going to build out operations until you actually know what's going to happen. But it does speak to the challenge of trying to make a made-in-America supply chain, and then also trying to grow solar at the fastest rate possible. And so that's what's divided the industry, and that's the challenge Biden has faced. And so Treasury kind of went in the middle because they created this provision where in total, 40% of the content needs to be domestic made. And that 40% spans the cells, the modules, and the trackers. Hmm. So there is some wiggle room there. And so, you know, no one is completely happy, um, but this is kind of the middle line between what different parties were advocating for.
2: Yeah, huge day for First Solar. Real quickly, while we have you, I mean, very different tone in the rest of the commodity space right Mm -hmm. now. We talked about the declines in copper both this week and kind of year-to-date. Other metals, industrial metals, not acting that great. Uh, uh, Energy, I think, is oil on pace maybe for its fourth Mm -hmm. weekly decline now. And does this keep just coming back to a a weak or darkening global economic outlook?
9: I think it's that. I think it's China specifically, which is such a key player in all these commodity markets. And of course, as we talked about, that story has failed to materialize and so, kind of those markets aren't tenter hooks there. But actually, check out Nat Gas because <laughs> it is popping five percent today. We just got the updated numbers from the recount, and those plunged by 16 specifically for the gas. Wow! So that is, so that is one thing that is actually in the green today. Also, the stronger dollar is what sent oil lower. It had been a little bit higher on the session, but uh, that move in the dollar has pressured it.
2: Great point. Meanwhile, copper's turned positive, so crisis over. Pippa, thanks. We appreciate it, Pippa Stevens. Still ahead in a new piece, The Wall Street Journal's Greg Ip warns the Fed is going to have to choose between inducing a deep recession or giving up on its decade-old 2% inflation target. He'll tell us why next. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage with stories of some of their influential business leaders. Here is Meta head of social marketing, Eric Toda.
3: The Asian American community is one that is built on resilience, but I think what makes me most proud isn't just how we've reacted to things that have happened to us, to things that we have gone through but the way that we look forward into the future. Asian Americans contribute $1.5 trillion to the GDP. And if you look at that, we are still under leveraged. And so what makes me most proud is the line of sight that we have, that we can be so much more, that we can continue to expand, and that we can continue to bridge and build better bridges with other communities so that the business world does thrive.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. Americans are getting accustomed to inflation, according to The Wall Street Journal's Greg Ip. That's a problem. Just look at the wage negotiations playing out right now. United Airlines reportedly offering an 18 percent raise in a new five-year contract for pilots. Delta implemented a 34 percent increase for pilots earlier this year. Auto workers and even Hollywood writers could also soon see big wage gains as workers demand to be compensated for the soaring cost of living. And just this morning, UMish reported consumers' long-run inflation expectations this month ticked up to a a new 12-year high. All of it could leave the Fed with only two distasteful options, abandon that 2% inflation target or induce a massive recession. Let's bring in Greg Ip. He's the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Greg, good timing today with the uh, U.Mish expectations. That's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it?
10: Yeah, it really is, Kelly. I mean, you think about it, I was sort of surprised that people were so like bullish with the Wednesday CPI number because some of the underlying data came in a bit less than expected. The bottom line is if you look at the core inflation rate, it's been around 5% annualized for the last four months. We're not really seeing any drop off in that uh, series, which is really the main thing that we're watching. And I think, you know, going back to the original point I made in that column, the fact that we're not all talking about it is itself kind of troubling. You know, if you go back to last fall with the midterms, it's all the Republicans want to talk about. Biden called his signature law the Inflation Reduction Act. It's just not there in the political conversation. And it feels to me like people are almost getting used to it. And the fact that companies like the airlines are granting these big wage increases reflects confidence they can pass that along in higher prices and not get a revolt by their uh, customers.
2: It is a weird sign that the Fed has lost some credibility, because even if the market thinks that break-evens are steady in the long term and it's fine, American consumers are reacting as if they should keep expecting higher prices. And they need to demand wages to cover that. And that itself is fueling further price hikes, which actually might not even have otherwise been in the pipeline.
10: I know you get into this fascinating debate about what series should we be watching to know if people's behavior and psychology has changed. And the Federal Reserve has traditionally focused on that long term uh, five to 10 year inflation expectation number that you referenced, which did tick up, but is still relatively moderate at 3.2%. You know, the hard reality is we don't have a good empirical or even theoretical foundation for believing that's the number we should care most about. Why don't we care about the one-year number? And that one-year number is like 4.5% right now and has been over 4% almost continuously for two years. Yeah, And there's a good case being made that that's what is affecting consumer behavior and, more important, uh, corporate pricing behavior.
2: Absolutely. Four and a half percent means people when they go, Okay, again, let's take a union example. If I'm negotiating a five year contract, well, then I need a 20 percent wage hike over that period. We've we've seen some pretty surprising numbers. I'm curious, Greg, what you make of the macro data, broadly speaking, right now. You know, I've seen jobless claims. Okay, they're up. But then people say it's just some Massachusetts quirk. Like everything seems to be explained away when it seems like leading indicators are saying there's a clear problem coming. And does that go back to your kind of point that we almost have to have a, a, a deep recession to kind of restore things back to pre-COVID normal.
10: Right. Well, if I'm if, if my worries uh, pan out and we have seen a switch thrown on the psychology of the consumer such that they now think 4 percent, not 2 percent inflation is a the norm, then we know that that means the Fed needs to really weaken the economy and deliver higher unemployment just to break that psychology. You have to take away consumer spending power so that corporates don't have the pricing power. Now, the theory of the Fed is they've raised interest rates a lot, five full percentage points in the last year or so, and that there's a delayed effect, and we will soon start to see that monetary tightening have its effect felt on the economy. And we do see a few signs. There was the rise in unemployment insurance claims that's been going on sort of like in a zigzag pattern for a number of uh, months or weeks. Maybe there's something going on with regions. Maybe there's something going on with the seasonals. Still, it does look like something is going on there. On the other hand the unemployment rate ticked down to a new low uh, the last month. And the other thing Kelly that I think is especially kind of striking is that as you know the leading edge of a monetary slowdown is housing because it's the most right. credit sensitive part of the economy. Well as you've been reporting in others if you listen to the home builders that's leveled out. They're seeing, you know, pretty good demand especially from the entry home uh, entry level home buyer. So while it may be the case that we've got a lot of weakness in train especially as some of the bank uh, credit crunch stuff feed through. It may be that the Fed has more work to do here.
2: Yeah, it's uh, like Steve Leesman has said, if we could stop the clock now, it might end OK. Or as Goolsby said, you know, something about how he still hopes we can have a soft landing. But I think hope was doing a lot of the work there.
10: Yeah, exactly.
2: Greg, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. You can read more of Greg's piece in the Wall Street Journal. Before we go, check out Bitcoin. Once thought to be an inflation hedge, it's on track for its worst week since November, which was when FTX collapsed. The cryptocurrency touching its lowest level since mid-March, twenty-six thousand and change right now, with an almost eleven percent drop this week. Uh, To follow Bitcoin and the other cryptos, go over to CNBC.com. That does it for us here on the Exchange today. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place